I want to complete a sermon that I began this morning on the distinguishing characteristic of the Christian life. And so I'll read those verses of Scripture that I read this morning and just spend a minute to, to review something, some of the things that I said. Now, I'm not going to go replay what we talked about this morning, but just kind of bring you up to date or help you to remember what we uh, found from God's Word. There are three passages of Scripture. The first is in Romans 5, verse 5, and then 1 Corinthians 13, and then Galatians 5, 22. Romans 5, 5 says that our hope never disappoints us because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 and through 3. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains I do not, and do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if, if, if I deliver my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now I want to be able to um, establish where, I'm, where I want to go tonight by um, reminding us of what we discussed this morning in the sense that that, that love is the distinguishing characteristic of a Christian. Now how does this love, if it is a power and a possession that is reserved for the regenerate, and if the word agape is more, is more often found as a verb in the active sense than a noun in the passive sense, how is this love how, how is it, um, how do we lay hold on it and how is it relevant in our life? That is, how is it operative in my daily life? And the answer to that, I think, is, has to do with the Holy Spirit because the love of God is infused, is poured out into our heart by the Holy Spirit. When you believe on Jesus Christ, and you become a believer, the Holy Spirit acts upon you in regeneration. He does not just act upon your life to change it, although He does that. He does more than that in that He comes to indwell you. He lives in you, and the Spirit of God is the Spirit of love, so that you have the love of God you have the Holy Spirit who indwells you and in his indwelling he brings with, him, with his person, with his presence, God's love, agape. 
There's something I failed to mention in the first serv- second service that I mentioned in the first service that kind of helps put it together, I think. I didn't realize that until I got home, got to thinking about it, is that this love that is our power and our possession can be augmented or it can be ignored. Now, if, you're, if you know anything about music, you know what augmentation is or to augment is to enlarge or to, to, to build upon and, and this love that is your possession can be built upon, can be enlarged or you can ignore it and it is diminished and atrophies. And what happens is that, that in the Christian community, there are a lot of people who are Christians who have the love of God in them, but they have not augmented that, they have not nurtured that love and nourished it, and so it has atrophied, it has died, it has diminished, and there is not that presence that there is not that evidence of love in their life. Now, what are the characteristics of a mature Christian love? If you could do an autopsy on the being of a Christian and the being of a non-Christian, you could do an analysis and somehow get with the scalpel um, down to the invisible and the intangible and, and see what is the being of the Christian and the non-Christian, you'll find, you would find that the Christian possesses in reality agape and the non-Christian does not. Am I too loud? Is this thing too loud? Huh? Yeah, give us a little, down a little on us just a little bit. Pardon? Huh. Well, I heard, the, I saw these guys holding their ears up here and I, is this better? I want you to be able to get with me now. You know, hang in there. This is pretty technical. But I want you to grasp it. It's so exciting. Let's get it together. Now, what are these characteristics? What are the symbols or the evidences of a mature love? I mentioned three this morning. I hope that you have jotted them down. You can probably just pop them back to me, can't you? One is that it disposes us to honor God. That is, it creates in us a desire to worship and adoration and praise. And if you look at your prayer life tonight, and if your prayer life is just an endless list of petitions and requests, then the problem is, is, may not be that you don't know how to pray, the problem may be that you do not, that, that there is no love there, there that love is not nurtured and augmented. Because love, mature love, causes us to, to, it bends our heart with an inclination to worship and honor and praise. Secondly, it gives credit to the Word of God. So that when we come to the Word of God, we do not come with suspicion or distrust. Our mature love causes us to see God's word or believe God's word is trustworthy. Third thing it does is that it creates in us a, a delight for the authority of God over our life. I delight, if I have a mature Christian love, I delight in God's authority for me. 
As a matter of fact, love and authority are often seen as the same thing or seen synonymously. For example, young people, sociologists tell us, equate authority with love so that when a, when a, when a parent does not exercise authority and discipline over his children for fear that they might not love him, then the child interprets the lack of authority as a lack of love. I think that's true. I think I've seen that happen. Young people or children equate authority with love so that when you have a mature love, it, it, it disposes you to delight in the authority of God. Now, there are two other things I want to mention tonight with regard to the evidences of a mature love. So it'd be number four. Love disposes us toward contentment in any situation in which we find ourselves. It disposes us toward contentment with any situation in which we find ourselves. Now I had this uh, young lady in my church in a past, past pastorate and she was from a very wealthy home and she married this guy, I think it was a school teacher, could have been a preacher or farmer or whatever, but she, she married one of these guys that didn't make a lot of money. You know, that sounds just like uh, teachers or preachers or, or farmers, right? And, 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 and I don't remember which, but, but she married this guy and they moved off and, and she was living in, on his salary and her parents were just always, they were so dismayed, you know. And they wanted to give them things, and they wanted to buy them things, and they wanted to, you know, to, 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 to uh, provide her husband a better job, you know, with the family business, etc. And they were just so concerned that, that, that she was just this miserable person over there living in pure poverty. And, 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 and they were just so worried about her. And she'd kind of laugh and tell me, she'd say, you know, my mother and daddy think that, that I'm just the most miserable person on the earth, but said, you know, I love Bill so much. My happiness is just in living with him and being his wife and, and, and enjoying our life together. And what she was saying was this, my love for this man has made my life contented. I'm content because of my love. Love disposes us toward contentment in any situation. That's what Paul was talking about when he said, I have learned in whatever state I'm in therewith to be content. And that's not easy to do. As a matter of fact, Pascal said that the great paradox of man is that he's always able to contemplate a better life than he presently is able to enjoy. And in less uh, philosophical terminology, what Pascal was saying was that most of us are always able to think that the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. And so we have all these people running around who are thinking, if I just had this job, or if I could make this move, or if I could win this championship, I could be happy. And really, happiness is the end product or the serendipity of my love for God and for others. 
And nowhere is that more graphically illustrated than in, the, than in one's vocation. For here is a missionary who could be commanding a tremendous salary and any kind of lifestyle he wants in the States, and he goes to the far-flung islands of the earth on the backside of nowhere, and he lives on the most terrible conditions there, and you ask him why, and his answer is, with, a, with an answer of exuberant joy and happiness and contentment and fulfillment, his answer is, I have come to find contentment in my love for God. Now, why is that true? Because the person who has a mature love, now watch this, is a person who understands that his primary employer is God. His primary employer is God. How many times does the Bible admonish us to do our work as unto the Lord with an understanding that you can have the worst kind of, 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 of job and, ha and be working under the worst kind of employer, I mean the, the Scrooge of all Scrooges, and find happiness and contentment in that by, because you know that ultimately you're not working for him, you're working for God. And that's why Paul could say, slaves, be obedient to your masters. You think he was doing that because he was promoting slavery? Of course not. I think that out of every pore of Paul's being, there was this abhorrence to slavery. And yet he understood that a man was to serve his master because ultimately his responsibility was to God. And he said, not as to men pleasers with eye service. That is, don't just work because somebody's watching you or to please some man. Your primary employer is God himself. Now what that does is two things. Now watch this. It, 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 it enables me, it detaches me from outward circumstances. It detaches me from outward circumstances. It means that the outward circumstances are not in control of my happiness. And secondly, it, it enables me to delight in objectionable circumstances so that the worst kinds of things that come in my life, the objectionable, I find contentment and happiness because I know that I'm in the will of God and ultimately I'm responsible to Him. Fifth thing that love, mature love does is this. It restrains the disease of bitterness. It restrains the work of bitterness. Now Jonathan Edwards, the great reformer who was the principal person that God used in the, the Great Awakening, has one of the tr most tremendous treatments on the, fruits of the, the fruit of the Spirit there is in print. I want to I quote a statement from Jonathan Edwards. An envious Christian, a malicious Christian, a cold-hearted Christian is the greatest absurdity and contradiction. It is as if one would speak of dark brightness or false truth. It just cannot be. If there is a malicious, cold-hearted, bitter Christian 
with a root of bitterness in his life. It just is a contradiction to the Christian faith. It just cannot be. Now, it does not mean that a Christian does not have to struggle against resentment and bitterness. He will have to struggle against resentment and bitterness. And we're all vulnerable to malice and bitterness. And the scripture says we have to fight that with all our might. But as the Christian's love begins to mature, it begins to dissolve that root of bitterness and that resentment that he might have in his life. Now, I want to come to the final point and spend a little time there. Are you still with me? One person is. Two. I want to ask a third question. How can we augment this love toward other people? Now, now, what we've really been dealing with to some great extent has to do with our love of God and His love for us. How can we augment or nurture this love from me to you? I want to introduce a theological um, term, and I want to define it in just a moment, but I want you to put it down. It's called the judgment of charity. Now, let me illustrate it. We're always making evaluations and judgments of others. This past week, I was in a revival meeting with this young preacher that surrendered preach when I was out pastoring out West Texas. And so we went out to visit, one, you know, one-on-one visits. And we went in this home, and, and this, this lady was there, and we shared the gospel with her. He did. He did all the sharing, and, and, and that was great. I was there just to, you know, kind of encourage and and I could tell he wanted to do that. And she asked some questions, and really, I mean, I mean heavy questions, and, and raised some kind, some kind of uh, observations about certain church members, etc. And he responded to her, you know, in her ask, answering her questions and in her observation. And as we left, he asked me, he said, what did you think about my response to her? He said, did I, did I handle that well? And, and I answered him, you know, uh, I, but I didn't answer him exactly like I was thinking. Now, we don't always say what we really think or how we really evaluate a situation. We don't always tell exactly how we think about it, do we? In every experience of human interaction, there is this process of analysis and evaluation. Do I like you? Do I like what you're doing? Do I like what you're saying? Do I like how you look? And if, we, and if we're not doing that with, with, with heavy consciousness, we're doing it at least subconsciously. In every interaction, there is this process of evaluation and analysis. I'm making an evaluation and I'm making a judgment of you and you of me. I know that's what he did with me that week. Now, I'm a little paranoid anyway, but I know that when I preached, he was sitting out there evaluating what I was saying and making judgment on it. I never asked him, you know, how'd I do? 
because you don't ever ask somebody unless you want the truth, or well, part of the truth at least. And I know he was sitting over there evaluating and making judgment of me. We, we can't help that. That's probably why we play these little hide and seek games, you see, where we, we wear these masks. And, and I don't want you to really know what I really am like because if you really know me, you might reject me and not like me. And so I'm going to project an image to you that I think you will like, you see. That's the games we play, these little hide and seek games, trying not to be vulnerable. A man told his pastor one time, he said, I hope that when I die, there are at least five people at my funeral who care enough to sit in that funeral and not look at their watch. <laughs> I hope that when I die, that there'll be five people there, at least five people who care enough about me that while they're sitting there, they're not checking the time, see what time it is, like some of you've already done tonight at this, at this funeral. <laughs> now, what the man is saying is, well, what he was saying was, I want people to love me, to care about me. Now, is there anybody here tonight who does not want somebody to love you, to care about you? Is there anybody here who does not want the love and the care, does not want to be loved? Not a single one of us. Now, watch. At the bottom line of Christianity is the golden rule. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. So that if a man wants to be loved and to be cared for, he is to love and to care for the other just as he is. That's the judgment of charity. The judgment of charity is the practice of the benefit of the doubt. It's as simple as that. Now I know there are people who are out to get me. I know they are. They, they sit around and plot. You know, I'm being facetious. But, but I, you know, uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that we are to, to be totally naive about everybody and everything. But let me say that it is better to err in over-trusting than it is under-trusting. Not a single amen to that. Now, what we're, what, what, we ha what we're coming to is the difference between the best case analysis and the worst case analysis. Now put on your thinking cap and follow carefully. When a deed is done, God not only is concerned with the external action, He reads the heart. He's very much concerned about the motive. Even in our judicial system, we make distinctions between first-degree murder and second-degree murder. And a part of the distinction, the distinction is whether or not there was what? Malice aforethought. And the burden on the jury is that they have to not only evaluate the act, but they have to evaluate whether there was premeditation, what was the motive of that act, 
And if they can prove that there was premeditation, it intensifies the deed. Now watch. Worst case analysis is when we play the game of reading the other person's heart. When somebody does something to us, we attribute, in worst case analysis, to them the worst possible motive for their action. And it is very unlikely when someone hurts you that they really meant to hurt you as they did. Now, there are some who would like to, but they're in the minority. What is the best case analysis to apply to a situation? It's when we attribute the best of all possible motives to some sinful action. And unfortunately, we reserve that practice to whom? To ourselves. And the best example of that, and I'm not up here to cut anybody down, best example of that, Richard Nixon. The only man who's ever been forced out of the presidency for something he did. And Richard Nixon got on public television when he finally came out and, 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 and spoke to the issue. He made, he, he made a statement of four words that caused his downfall, I'm absolutely convinced, that pressed him out of office. His four-word statement was, I made a mistake. He softened it. Now, normally, we don't associate mistakes with moral matters. Now, they are, but we don't associate mistakes with moral matters. I mean, you don't put a guy in prison because he adds two plus two and comes up with five, makes a mistake. He softened it. And most people who know and who study that, that period of time in, in the body politic say that if Richard Nixon had stood up and said, I was wrong, I did a wrong thing, and I'm sorry, will you forgive me? He would have gone back into the presidency and everybody would have forgotten it. But what he did was he, he applied the best of all possible motives to himself. And that's what we're all guilty of doing. Instead of applying the best of all possible motives to others, we, we reserve that for ourselves and we tend to look at our sins in the best possible light. So that if somebody comes up to you and says, you hurt me, what you did hurt me greatly, hurt me deeply, you and I are more likely to respond, I didn't mean to do that. I didn't know that I was doing that. And what we're doing is we're applying, we're attributing best case analysis to our actions and our motives. Now, it is true that love tends to err 
in the direction of charity. Love tends to err in the direction of charity. Now, a long time ago, I, 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 I became intrigued by the statement Jesus made on the cross. I, I, I want to. I, I, this sounds like ministerial talk, but it's true. I have probed. Oh, I have. I've. I've. I have studied that. I have probed that statement. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Practiced the fine art of applying first case, best case analysis to every situation. That's why he could look at the worst scoundrels of his day and find something in them that was redeemable and good. And that person who is like him, who has this love that, that is agape kind of love, is the kind of person who finds it natural to love that scoundrel down the hall in the dormitory. And that, that guy who lets his dog, you know, run on your lawn, and not just run, you know, on your lawn. And, 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 and see these folks that are totally objectionable and unloving and find in them a reason to apply first case analysis and love them. And that's why when the pagan looked at the church, he said, by how they love one another. There is a story, I don't know if it's true or not, that a man came one day to a disciple of the Apostle Paul and said, I'd like to meet that man. I've heard so much about him, I'd like to find what makes him tick. He said, I'll tell you what, I'll introduce you. You'll have to go with me to, to a Roman dungeon but we'll go there and I'll introduce you to the Apostle Paul. And as they went down into that dungeon to find the cell where the Apostle was chained to the Praetorium Guard, this visitor expected what they would find was this defeated, emaciated man waiting to die. And when they got there, they found this vibrant, dynamic Paul who loved just like he wrote. And when they left, the visitor said to the disciple, what is that man's secret? And the disciple said, well, he's in love. The apostle Paul is in love? I didn't even know he's married. I didn't even know he had a girlfriend. I didn't say it like that, but... I didn't even know he had a sweetheart. And the disciple said, oh, you misunderstand. The apostle Paul is in love with Jesus Christ. And the visitor said, oh, is that all? 
And the disciples said, is that all? Friend, that's everything. And that's why Jonathan Edwards says that love is the sum total of Christianity. How is your love life? Don't answer that. I'm not, I'm not, I'm talking about how, how is your love? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the instruction of your word and its help. And we stand on it tonight to believe that it's true. Help us to act upon it for Jesus' sake. We have three invitations that I'd like to encourage you to consider. One, to make the most important decision of your life, to give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. Now, I preached at a little old country church out there in the middle of uh, Parker County this last week. Frankly, it was kind of dreading going down there and saw about 12 young people come to Christ in spite of the the whole kind the, the whole thing it was exciting to see young men and women give their heart and life to Jesus would you like to do that would you do that tonight you can be saved the critical issue is to allow God's grace to effect your salvation by your faith in Jesus would you like to come tonight to join the church come for rededication of your life we'll give you an opportunity this is the opportunity for you to do that we'll not wait long so if you come you come right on the first word while we stand sing would you come